All right, if y'all would, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. We're continuing to go through uh, the parables. And we're at this parable that you, once again, you've probably heard this one. uh, The parable of the mustard seed. But let me ask you a question as we as we get ready to read this. Is it easy for you to trust that God is at work in your life? Is it easy for you to trust that God is at work in your life when you start failing classes? Or maybe when a parent gets really sick? Or maybe when the sin that you thought you had defeated years ago has come back up. Is it easy to know that God is at work in the life of the believer? It's really what we're going to be looking at tonight. Luke chapter 13, we'll read verses 18 to 21. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew, and it became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to know what the kingdom of God is like. For that is where we will see our salvation. And we know that the evil one has promoted his own kingdom. And Father, we know that even maybe some of us in this room are citizens of that one in his grip of death. And we need to be ransomed, we need to be rescued. And so we're asking that as we see what your son is saying, that the truth of the gospel would set us free. Liberate us from the bondage of sin. Liberate us from being in the covenant of works and under the the grip of the curse. And send us flying to Christ. He who is the second Adam. He who is the Redeemer. Holy Spirit, only you can do this work, and we ask all this in Christ's great and glorious name. Amen. I remember before my senior year, we had gone to a a team, my high school had gone to a team summer basketball camp, and we were getting ready to play this one team, and uh, when the game started, I saw this one guy, and he was supposed to be their best player, and I remember thinking, there is no possible way. Like, everything about this guy just looked the exact opposite. He didn't even look like he played basketball. And I, I thought, prideful self, who was getting ready to go play college football, I thought, this is going to be a piece of cake. He might have put up 30 on me. Uh, it was bad. He was clearly their best player, and I clearly underestimated him. We underestimate things a lot in life. We underestimate People, we underestimate strategies, we underestimate tests. 
Many things we underestimate. But maybe the biggest problem with the church today and with Christians today is that we are underestimating God's strategies. We're underestimating God's ways because we think that there are better ways. It is interesting because that is exactly what the Pharisees and the disciples and really everyone in Jesus' time, that's what they were doing. They were expecting that they would have a Messiah who would bring earthly dominance, social reform, or military prowess. And often when Jesus would, would do things, including healing this woman on the Sabbath day immediately before this, they would say, Jesus, what are you doing? You're not doing it the way we thought you were going to do it. And it's ultimately why they would send him to the cross. But what Jesus is teaching us in this parable here is this. Don't underestimate God's chosen strategies. Don't underestimate God's chosen servants. Don't underestimate God's chosen Savior. Trust that God is at work. But God's going to do it His way with His people and with His Savior. Don't underestimate God's chosen strategies. Go back to verse 18. Jesus said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? It's interesting, that word like and the word compare, they're the same word in the original language, and that word is used five times, which is clearly given some emphasis there. Jesus is comparing what the kingdom of God is like considering nature. Let me just make a quick point that I made to my interns yesterday is this. We believe, as John Calvin used to put it, we believe in the two books of Revelation natural revelation and special revelation. We believe that God has revealed who He is partly in nature, but then much more in the gospel. This is why Jesus will often be using illustrations from nature to describe the kingdom because God's world is not merely the church. But everywhere you go in this world, it is God's world. He made it. He structured it. And let me encourage you that as you go about in life, the more you know the gospel to see those truths illustrated in nature. This is what Jesus is doing. He is comparing the kingdom of God. What does he compare it to? Verse 19. It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made their nest in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Don't underestimate God's chosen strategies. We often underestimate God's chosen strategy, strategies and we try to live out our own. One of the ways in which we try to live out our own strategies is we love to think that ministry or the Christian life or the church, you can use any of those three for what I'm going to say here. We think that everything needs to be big, fast, and famous, and that's what will work. It is interesting that sometimes when we see people who are trying to live the Christian life big, fast, and famous, you've got to ask the question, is that really zeal for God or is it insecurity? 
We often think in today's world that if we're not showing people something, then it's not really happening. Isn't that often why we criticize people? Because we don't see the things that should be happening, so God must not be at work. It's often why social media has made us so fake, because we will post anything to seem real. We'll post quotes or scripture or books or pictures of our devotions, because we know that if we don't post pictures of our devotions, then it never happened. But oftentimes what happens in this, when we want everything to be big, fast, and famous, this carries over into church ministry. It carries over into things like RUF. And we'll begin to think that if we're not big, fast, and famous, we'll begin to say, well, if I don't see it, then it must not be happening. I had a coworker at my previous church who, uh, for about five, six years, she did a great job. She was very faithful to her work and Certainly like anyone, not without her own flaws, certainly me. And, uh, but she really did. She did a great job. But I remember one time when a graduating senior came into her office and basically chewed her out for about an hour telling her, you didn't do enough for me. Of the top three people that she spent time with during her years there, she was absolutely one of those. See, oftentimes when we think that things are not big, fast, and famous, we think that God is not really at work. You see, often what we don't see is the times when people are on their knees praying. Or the times when they are wrestling with a certain text for Bible study or counseling or sermons to figure out how they can richly apply it to their people's lives. That's often why the church has sacrificed prayer because prayer's not really evident. It's not really doing something. We don't always see it. And so we save prayer for two minutes on a Sunday. It's often why we get so discouraged when our sanctification and our our Christian change process, when it seems slow, we get so frustrated because we'll say things like, I should be better than this right now. Level one author says, he says, in our way of thinking, we are tempted to say, I will take the larger place because it will give me more influence for Jesus Christ. But Jesus teaches us that we should determine to take the lower place unless the Lord himself moves us into the larger one. We are tempted to take up something big in our eyes or in the eyes of others for his name, but then we lose sight of him altogether. It's often why we, we love to think about cultural transformation, but we spend little time thinking about character transformation. We try to think in big, fast, and famous ways. We also try to think that being impressive and influential is what's really needed for the church to see conversions. Again, this one author says, What do you want for me? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked us. And we respond, Unlimit me and unlimit my congregation for God's glory in my generation. Man, have I prayed that so many times. He goes on, but when unlimit me becomes our prayer, 
We need to realize we're not the first ones to pray it. A desire like unlimit me now, that is what ruined the Garden of Eden in the first place. And it's what made Jesus come and die for us. That is what Adam and Eve said. Unlimit me now. And that's when the fall happened. We often want our Christian growth to be without any process. And it's often when we try to manipulate either our own personal Christian life or the life of other Christians or the church. And we try to fake it till we make it or we try to microwave it. But it's kind of like this. Imagine taking Valerie, who's my daughter, who was in the stroller here earlier. Imagine taking her and putting her on a treadmill that is already going 15 miles per hour. What would happen if you put her on that? Yes, some of you are laughing because it sounds so ridiculous and it would be. But that's what we're doing when we say, I should be better now. We're trying to get on a treadmill when there's been no process. It's often why we love to staple fake fruit on our lives so that others might be impressed rather than taking time to trust that God is at work and he will produce the real thing. How often we have run people over because of our lack of patience with them. How often we have run down ministries because we want everything to be perfect now. I was telling a guy actually earlier today, uh, it was funny because he came up to me and he said, hey, are you a student? Um, Have you ever heard the gospel? And I was like, I can be a student right now. Um, Told him to sit down, we were talking. And we started getting into the conversation about seminary and ministry and things like that. And I told him, I said, this guy's 24. And I said, look, I'll just call him Joe because Joe walked out earlier. So y'all told Joe when he came back. It wasn't Joe. I said, Joe, don't try to be 50-year-old Joe when you're only 24. Guys, some of you are looking at your own life and you're demanding that you have the Christian maturity that a 75-year-old would have in your position and you're only 19. God has a process. He is going to work in you. And he is going to work in the church. And you need to let him have his way because whenever we try to help him out, it never goes well for us. We often think being powerful and culturally transformational, that that's what's crucial. But I do think it's interesting that when you look at the book of Acts, oftentimes when Paul was preaching the gospel, the culture there got worse. Sometimes we can even leave a church or leave a ministry because nothing seems to be happening. At least in our eyes, nothing seems to be happening. And so it must be the church's fault. But maybe actually we leave some things in some places prematurely because we don't believe that God is at work and we don't trust his ways. And we just want to be a part of something that looks successful. I would love for my graduating seniors to think about that as they think about going to churches next year. Sometimes we leave actually because... We don't understand God's grace because we don't want to be around messy sinners. We love God being gracious to us and being patient with us, but we get fed up with other people. And since they're not getting better, we say, I'm out of here. As one author says again, you were never meant to repent because you can't fix everything. Do you hear that? 
You were never meant to repent of the fact that you cannot fix everything and everyone. He goes on to say this. You are meant to repent because you tried. If that gets worse, I can switch microphones. So hopefully that's not going to be too bad. You see what he's saying there. Oftentimes when we trust our strategies above God's, we need to learn to repent. And we need to trust that God is at work. We need to trust his strategies. What are his strategies? Look back at this parable. Jesus talks about two very, very small things here. A grain of mustard seed, which would have been uh, used in various proverbs to show how you know, something that could be so small. It would be not the smallest known seed ever, but it, the, the, one that they, the ones that they would use most, it would be the smallest known one. So he talks about a single grain of a mustard seed. And then in verse 20, he talks about leaven, both things that are very small, very unassuming. But it's those things that even though we don't know what the whole process is like, he just almost, Jesus as a word, he just snaps his fingers and he says, look, this is what will happen in the end to it. The grain of mustard, the grain of mustard seed, it will become a full on tree and birds will nest there. And the leaven in those three measures of flowers, it will leaven the entire thing. What is Jesus saying in these parables? He's saying this. Trust that God is at work, especially when you don't see it. Trust that God is at work, especially when you don't see it. I read the text earlier from Ezekiel 17, and maybe you were sitting there thinking, why in the world are we reading this obscure text? Because in there, in Ezekiel 17, verses 23 to 24, God is talking about a tree, and that tree would be a big tree. It would be spreading various places, and it said that birds would be gathering onto that tree. The vision that Ezekiel is having here is that the kingdom of Israel would replace the pagan kingdoms of the world whenever the son of David would become king. The people of Israel, they've been waiting for the son of David to eventually be the one true king. And whenever he would be the king, they'd be the greatest kingdom in the world. That's what that prophecy is referring to. It is very interesting that when it talks about the tree, it talks about the birds. What in the world is Jesus talking about here? The birds, they represent the nations. This parable is literally being fulfilled right now in your midst because, brothers and sisters, we are the nations. I think one thing that we desperately need to remember today is that when we think about what is going to promote true unity amidst diversity, it is the power of the gospel. The gospel does the work that nothing else in the world can do. What Jesus is saying is that the gospel needs no help. It just needs to be proclaimed. It just needs to be responded to. It just needs to be embraced and it needs to be told to other people. The gospel will work. That's what Jesus is saying. He also gives this picture, as it were, thinking about Daniel chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar had a a dream and it says the visions of my head as I lay in, in my bed were these I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great and the tree grew and it became strong and its top reached to heaven 
And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. And here it is. And the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. This is the picture of a tree with the birds. That would be something where it would bring in the community of the nations. My friends, how in the world is that going to happen? It's by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that will unite people from North America, South America, Europe, Africa, Asia, and don't forget your people in Australia. It will unite them all. That is why it talks about in Revelation. It will talk about how there will be a multitude of nations and they are there all wearing the same white robes which represent the robes of Jesus Christ. Guys, do you want to see true unity today? Don't get carried away with so many of the modern thoughts and come back to the timeless truths. God's strategies. We need to trust that God is at work through His strategies. The word, what Jesus is saying here, talking about the seed, it's representing the words, representing the gospel. We need to remember that God's strategy is this. His strategy is the word. The word does the work. I love that when you read the book of Acts, you'll see this in Acts chapter 6 verse 7. It says, so the word of God continued to spread. Acts chapter 12, verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord powerfully continued to spread and prevail. Literally the reason why there are churches, not just one church, and there are ministries, not just one ministry, that there are Christians, not just one Christian. The reason why all that is here in Stillwater, Oklahoma, 2,000 years later, is because the Word was at work. Amen? Jesus prays in John 17, 17, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes through hearing. So in other words, how do you grow by faith? You grow by hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the word of Christ. I think one thing that we need to be encouraged by is this. Is that you grow by believing God's word, not sitting there constantly doubting it. Because some of you, when you hear about the grace of the gospel that is in Jesus Christ, and you think about your life, and you think about your sin, you think about your current struggles and battles with sin, you think, well, that might apply to this person, but not me. I'm a different case. My friends, the Word of God is sufficient for you. It might be very difficult to believe that, but it is sufficient, and it is true for you. Believe it. I love what Luther says. Luther was never short on good quotes. Sometimes very bad ones, but this one was a good one. What is Luther? He's reflecting on the Reformation during his time in Germany. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine originally, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, a poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, how did I come to the point where... 
People call uh, the children of Christ by my evil name. He actually can't stand it that they were called Lutherans. He says this, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Talking about translating it. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. Now listen to this. I did nothing. The word did everything. The word does the work. God is at work through his strategies. God uses the gospel as his main strategy. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. How do you grow in Christian maturity? How do you grow in knowing Christ more? Well, we try to say a lot of times it's called the means of grace. The word, prayer, and the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism, those things experienced in community. Isn't it amazing that God did not give us far off things that we had to go and search out and he gave us very normal things right in front of us because he wants you to grow. You need to trust that the fact that right now, even with all your doubts, but if you are a believer, maybe you have a mustard seed amount of faith. But if you are a believer, the word of the gospel that you are hearing right now, it is true for you. You do not make it true. That is so huge for whenever you go through seasons when you don't feel like you're growing. God is at work. I want you to be encouraged that some of you who are struggling maybe even with sins that are full-on addiction. Or maybe a, a sin that you've been fighting against for years. Or maybe you've been doing better at fighting the actual deed and act of that sin, but you can just still feel those sinful desires and those temptations. My friends, I want you to see that what Jesus is telling you is that God is at work all the time in your life, especially when you don't know it. He is at work. Keep trusting him. Keep believing his word. He is at work. Believe his strategies. That's what you can embrace. Don't underestimate God's chosen strategies. Also, don't underestimate God's chosen servants. This is more of an application from this. There's not really so much here that the parable is really focusing on this particular man or this particular woman. It seems like this is just part of the illustration, but it is a good application for us. You see, we often underestimate God's chosen servants because we love to promote our own Isn't this why we think we need Christian influencers today for Christianity to be relevant? We often say, well, how will people respect Christianity if we don't have influencers? Or we say this, well, think about how many people would listen to them. 
Isn't that why we love to put our hope and faith when we hear the least bit of Jesus mentioned by people like Justin Bieber or Chance the Rapper or Kanye West? Because we say, maybe this is when God will really break out. As if God needs help. We also think that God only needs people who have their life all together. He can't use someone like me because of my past. Or he can't use so and so because of maybe some of their handicap. Or you know, mentally or physically or whatever it is. I mean for one, go tell Ehud that in Judges. He literally was from the people who were called the people of the right hand. And he had a handicapped right hand. And God says, that's who I want to use. We often forget what Jesus says in Mark 2 verse 17. When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have not come to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know that they're sinners. The only ministry that exists in Christ's church is a holy and perfect God ministering to sinners through sinners. It's the only type of ministry there is. We often think God, he needs the the really, really gifted people. But we have to remember, and we've seen this a lot today, that oftentimes people who are really gifted, but they're not growing in godliness, they often burn out or they sin out. It's a story of a pastor who uh, had a very renowned ministry in the 20th century and He was preaching at all these conferences and he was writing all these books and he had a very big church. And uh, one day he had an affair with a secretary. And there was a young man who was at Westminster Seminary at the time in Philadelphia. His name is Joe Novenson. And Joe had the guts to call up this one minister who had sinned very publicly. And he asked him if he could take him out to his favorite restaurant to buy him a meal. He took him out to eat, and after the entire night of just chatting it up, he finally mustered up the courage to ask this one pastor. He said, how could you, with the ministry that you had, the gifts that you had, the influence and the platform that you had, the church and the conferences and the books and all those things that you had, how could someone like you have fallen? This guy responded to Joe. He said, Joe... You're a Calvinist, right? He said, yes. He said, that means you believe in the doctrine of total depravity, that sin really is as bad as it is. Yep. Joe, I forgot that. And that's the reason why I fell. God does not need our servants who we think are just going to be the best people. But actually, he loves to use people like David. By the way, David was a murderer and an adulterer. He loves to use people like Rahab, who was a prostitute. He loves to use people like Paul, who was a murderer. He loves to use people like Matthew, who was a tax collector. He loves to use people like Peter, who seems like he could never get his stuff together. Those are the only types of people that God uses. If you think that you can go to another campus ministry or another church where people have it all together, run away from that church because they don't. Nobody does. 
Especially not this man preaching here. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. He's trying to say in a nice way, you're kind of dumb. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God loves to use the weak. He loves to use sinners who are constantly running to Jesus, asking for the forgiveness of sins, because that's the only types of people he uses. If you think you have your life all together, please hear me that Satan has you right where he wants you. But if you know your life is a wreck and you need Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ has you right where he wants you. Amen? I want you to be encouraged tonight that God will use you wherever you go with whatever sins you have, whatever sins you've had to fight, whatever sins you still have to repent of, and with whatever suffering you've gone through, God will use you, dear believer. Don't underestimate God's chosen servants. Don't underestimate God's chosen Savior. We see this when we think about how this text leads us to the cross. But we often... Once again, we try to develop our own saviors. I think in today's world, certainly something that needs to be pointed out for both sides of the divided line, if you want to call it that way, politically. Placing your hope in politicians and politics more than Christ is idolatry. It is the wrong response to say, Well, I'm going to have nothing to do with it because I'm not going to be one of those worldly people. Don't be like the Pharisee we talked about last week who said, Lord, thank you that I do not be so worldly like those people. That's not what we're saying. But what I am saying is this, is that no matter who is in office, no matter what policies are in place, it will always be a sinful world. That does not mean we don't care. We should care. We do care. But my friends, ain't nobody going to be Jesus Christ but Jesus Christ. There is a grand difference between interacting with politics and caring about politics versus placing your hope and trust in politics. And please hear me, that goes both ways. We also need to repent of thinking that we ourselves can be our own savior. There are two also, we can say this, there's always two sides, it's very interesting. On one side, it's people who say, well, as long as I just change If I can just change and get my life together, that's how I will be delivered. That's how I will have things go right. And then there are other people who will say, I can't change. I'm just going to accept myself the way I am. The problem is it's just too much of you both ways. You will never be your own savior. Even if you accept yourself as your own savior, that does not deliver you. But rather what Jesus is saying 
is that actually only He, He who is God's Savior, He is the only one who we can trust. John 3.16, you know the verse, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is only by Him. It is by Jesus Christ. I want you to see this insert that I put in your bulletin, your handout. It's this long quote by John Calvin. And I don't normally like to read too many long quotes unless they're verses, but this is a really good one that I think I would encourage you to read and pray over. What type of a Savior is Jesus? Calvin says, We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anyone else or anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of Him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in His anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in His dominion. If purity, in His conception. If gentleness, it appears in His birth. For by His birth, He has made He was made like us in all respects that we might learn to feel our pain. Excuse me, that He might learn to feel our pain. If we seek redemption, it lies in His passion. If acquittal, in His condemnation. If remission or forgiveness, if remission of the curse in His cross, if satisfaction in His sacrifice, if purification in His blood, if reconciliation in His descent into hell, if mortification of the flesh in His tomb, if newness of life in His resurrection, in immortality in the same, if inheritance of all blessings in His kingdom, if untroubled expectation of judgment, in the power given to Him to judge, in short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in Him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Amen? It is in Jesus Christ where you get everything. Colossians 1.28 is why Paul says this, Him we proclaim. Colossians is a book that's all about don't get distracted by the empty deceit and philosophies in this world. Everything you need is in Jesus Christ. You might not see it at work. You might not see it happening immediately. But God is saying, trust my Savior. He is enough for you. Thomas Huxley, he was getting done with lecturing in one class. He was late to his next lecture and he he ran and he got into a buggy at the street and he, he yelled at the driver, drive faster. So the driver drove faster. But when he had gone a long way, Huxley looked up and he realized they were going the wrong direction. The driver responded saying, I'm not sure where we're going, but I'm driving really fast. You might be doing everything big, fast and famous. But then you might look up and say, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm doing everything big, fast, and famous. You see, what if we finally look up at the end of our lives or even right now and we look up and say, I've been going the wrong way for 18, 19, 20, or 31 years. The cross is the right way. 
Because it was on the cross that when the whole world said, nothing good can happen from this. It was at that moment that Jesus Christ was reconciling the world to himself. Amen. Trust God's ways. Trust that God is at work in your individual life and in the church's lives and even in unbelievers' lives, and he's going to bring them to himself. Let's pray. Father, we're asking that we would trust you in your ways, trusting your strategies, trusting the servants that you use, trusting your Savior. Lord, we are wretched men and women, but yet we have an unbelievably perfect, infinitely valuable Savior. So help us to look to him. We ask all this in his great and glorious name. Amen.